Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the particulars of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including a mandatory autonomous emergency braking for Australian cars starting in 2023. The Citroen C4 has some hydraulics in the suspension, the Hyundai i30N hot hatch, Kia and Hyundai show their green credentials and Mercedes have a buy a race car initiative. And in our feature stories, we road test the Honda Accord Hybrid, and we get more information on Mercedes Buy a Race Car initiative. And in quirky news, we have a great story on the most elegant use of secondhand wind turbine blades at bus stops and cycle parking locations. Now, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Although we have had a little trouble with that. If there is expertise out there on how to make that work every time, I'd be more than happy to listen. There is, of course, our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. But for the moment, let's get on with today's news. Autonomous Emergency Braking, AEB, will be mandatory on all new cars from March 1, 2023, and all new vehicles for sale in Australia from March 2025. This is nine months behind the European timeframe. AEB has been shown to reduce police-reported crashes by 55%, rear-end crashes by 40%, and vehicle-occupant trauma by 28%. It's estimated that the new Australian design rules will save 580 lives and avoid 20,000 serious and 73,000 minor injuries, with net benefit of $1.9 billion. Some new vehicles still don't have AEB and some only on their higher specification models. And not all AEB systems are created equal. The mandate initially only requires a basic system that detects other vehicles, not necessarily pedestrians. ANCAP, the Australian Crash Testing Organisation, says that their latest analysis shows that nearly 90% of all new vehicles were available with AEB. In 1952, Citroen introduced their first vehicle with hydro-pneumatic suspension, the Traction Avant 15CVH. In 1955, the Citroen DS had a belt-driven seven-piston hydraulic pump driven by the engine to pressurise hydraulic fluid not only for the suspension, but also the power steering, the brakes and the gearbox and clutch assembly. Somewhat complicated and certainly different. Now Citroen has just launched their latest C4 model in Australia with their progressive hydraulic cushion, but it is only part of the suspension, not the whole thing. In a typical suspension, the springs and shock absorbers work together to dampen the impacts, but if you reach the limit, it is usually a hard thump on a pretty solid rubber stopper. We often call that bottoming out. The C4 Citroen adds an extra hydraulic stop, so that at the extremities you get an extra effort to cushion the effect. When Hyundai adds the letter N to the model name, it means it is the performance version. The i30N hatch, released in the second half of this year, 
adds a hot hatch to the once dominant category that includes cars such as the Toyota Corolla. Hyundai will soon release their small SUV Kona N, the smaller and lighter i20N which has received rave reviews overseas and their i30N sedan. The i30 hatch has 206 kilowatts of power and nearly 400 newton meters of torque. It comes with an all-new 8-speed dual wet-clutch transmission or a 6-speed manual, which is actually slower in acceleration and uses more fuel. Inside it has a large 10.25-inch infotainment screen, although there is no heads-up display for the driver. Hyundai has called it racetrack capable, and it would certainly do well on a track day. It is priced from $44,500 plus on-road costs. Although Kia and Hyundai are all part of the Hyundai Motor Group, they are separate organisations and keen competitors. They are both now going hammer and tongs to announce new electrification models. Having just launched the EV6, Kia has displayed their EV9 concept electric SUV at Automobility Los Angeles. They say its philosophy is based on five key design pillars. Bold for nature, joy for reason, power to progress, technology for life and tension for serenity. Sounds like the marketing brochure for a company offering self-help retreats. Perhaps the biggest dimension that they are proud of is its 27-inch ultra-wide display which they say connects the real world to the virtual one. Not to be left behind, Hyundai has showcased its 7 concept at the same show. The striking feature is the side entrance that opens up like French doors with no B-pillar to get in the way. It has a range of 480 kilometres. Modern cars typically have improved handling and more horsepower, more than enough to exceed speed limits. Mercedes-Benz performance brand, AMG, offers race days and now in partnership with 888 Engineering, offers a more manageable way to buy a full race car. Jerry Stemelis from Mercedes Australia puts this in perspective. The increase in AMG sales are now uh, 30% of our total volume are AMG vehicles. And the more AMG vehicles we sell, the more participants we have at our track days. And some of our customers are on their 8th or 10th AMG over the past 20, 20 odd years. And as they graduate through the ranks of our normal driving academy, they want more. And they're, they're lured in by some of the best racetracks in the world that we have in our own backyard, such as Bathurst and Phillip Island. So it's only natural that they want more. And that has been the news. The medium-sized market in Australia for passenger cars is declining, whereas for SUVs, it's the second most popular category in the country and it's increasing. But the medium-sized cars dominated by Toyota Camrys still have some other models selling relatively small numbers but with some great character. The Honda Accord has been in decline but they're trying to bounce back. Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys. Do you remember, Alan, the first Honda Accords? Oh, I do, David, and didn't we think they were the bee's knees? Two-speed automatic, if I remember correctly. And a little thing, three-door hatch. It would now be dwarfed by a current Civic, I would imagine. 
Absolutely right. And of course, at that stage, Honda's range was, uh, I think it was just the Accord. I think the Civic hadn't come yet. It then went through a stage in the sort of 80s and 90s where it was the bland, boxy car, but then started to get a little bit more sort of fastback uh, look to it as we entered sort of almost uh, the, the 2000s. And in fact, they raced them in England and that. But now, where would you describe it as now being? Well, they say it's a medium car, David, but look, I don't know. I reckon it's a large car. It's certainly the same size as the last Commodore that was uh, sold in Australia. That is the Commodore that was imported from Europe, not the, the big V8s and V6s. The Vauxhall insignia that was sold here as a Commodore never worked, probably sank Holden. So how would you describe the modern Accord? Where is you think is it aiming in the market with its looks? Well, it's an American look. I think it was designed for the American market, which is not a bad thing. I mean, it's just the way it is. But it is quite big. It's a fastback, obviously, but it's got a boot. Its front has a big chrome strip across the front, which is almost a little bit SUV-ish in some American sort of style. It has a certain bulkiness, but certain uh, prominence about it, solidness about its looks. Interior, how would that fit? Would you say, Alan, that it looks elegant without looking, going over the top and looking a little kitschy as though it's trying to be luxurious? It, it has its own inherent style to it rather than just copying or trying to be a bit over the top. No, it's not, although it does have fake wood, and you know how I feel about fake wood. But look, I think in this case it actually looks okay. So the engine and the gearbox, is this a performance vehicle? Not a performance vehicle, it's an economy vehicle. And the good thing about it is, compared to the other cars that we'd been testing that week, this one was, uh, you know, a half to a third of what those vehicles were using, as low as... 4.3 combined, and it got down to 3.2. In the urban area. This is because it's a hybrid, but it's not a mild hybrid. It's a good hybrid. And so the first 100 metres or so are in quietness. I like that. But it has a CVT gearbox. I'm not a fan. Yeah. Unfortunately, what it makes the car do is raw. How would you cope with its lane centering and and other features such as that well i think the lane centering worked reasonably well and it was fairly gentle relative to some of the cars we've driven but i did find the absence of blind spot monitoring a little bit off-putting considering that we'd been driving several other cars in close proximity it'll tell you if there's a car on the left hand side in blind spot monitoring how does it tell you It is only if you put the indicator on, so or press the button. So there's two ways to get that camera to come up. If I put my right-hand blinker on in the Honda and go to change lanes and there's a car there, will it tell me? No, no. Back in the old days, David, you had to look over your shoulder to see where you're going and you still have to do that in the Honda. What's it worth? It's 50000 and some change, which is not bad money considering... Uh, and it's had a something like $8,000 reduction. They have not been selling uh, nearly as well as Honda would like. They're clearly trying to tempt you in doing that. In summary, Alan, would it be a car for a particular situation? For my use around town, it's perfect. And I'm a really big 
EV and hybrid lover. I think they're a car for a purpose and especially that you can charge it as you go means you can jump on the highway if you want to and travel however far the petrol will take you. So, yes, it is for a particular situation, and I think it was good enough to make me want to take it home. I found it particularly good in the urban area, on the open highway. I don't know, maybe I was a bit sensitive. It certainly you know, gets some road noise when the road uh, surface gets a little rough, not not bumps and potholes, but just coarse grain tar, you know, with an aggregate rolled into it. It, it was, perhaps it caught me at the wrong time, but I found I uh, wasn't as happy to necessarily tour with it as much as others. What would be some of the other more non-Camry cars that it might compete with? Well, we tested it against several other cars. We uh, tested it against a Passat and the Hyundai, the Sonata, all similar size cars. Now, with the vacating of that segment of the market by Commodore and Falcon, it really only left a few players. And unfortunately, it's an ever-decreasing segment of the market. So I foresee in five years, none of these cars might be around. But a number have dropped out. The Subaru Levorg, the Ford Mondeo, the Kia Optima, and even the Subaru Liberty. It's a section of the market that has seen a number of what I would consider good cars fall by the wayside. You're right, David. The passenger car market has suffered and the SUV market has increased. So medium to large passenger cars have fallen by the wayside, as you suggested. We tested it against a Hyundai Sonata, Volkswagen Passat. We found both of those cars to be extremely good in their own right. But I fancy in five years, they won't be around. There were different cars, though, wasn't it? The Volkswagen, the top-of-the-line one, is a station wagon, which uh, adds practicality. The Hyundai Sonata is a real performance car with some really modern, elegant uh, sort of lines to it. No, not as elegant, but stylish lines to it, rather than, say, the conservative or more conservative Honda Accord. So there are horses for courses in this segment. And I think also price pays a big part of it too. When people get into these cars, they actually want a little bit of space. The Honda, I thought, was the most spacious, especially in the back. It's certainly one that you could be carted around in when you're sitting in the back. I saw once a a Kia Optima that was being used as a hire car, and they loved it. And the passengers, according to the driver, were, were more than happy. Well, a Honda would fit that bill particularly well and give you the appearance also of when you sat in the back you felt special you did feel special and of course if you sit on the passenger's side of the back seat then you also get to get a little bit of extra leg room if there's no one in the front because you can push the button on the back of the seat and move it forward you can electronically adjust the front seat from the back seat area and i think that that is a mark of a car that has been thought through Now, you'd think that if they're going to do that, that they would have put blind spot monitoring on the driver's side. But, you know, that's the dichotomy. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, David, as always. Bye-bye. And that was Alan Zervis from gaycarboys.com talking about the Honda Accord competing in a declining segment of the market but still wanting to show that it has its own particular characteristics. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Sometimes I have a vehicle that simply feels good to drive, such as the Ram 1500 Laramie pickup truck I had this week. The latest 1500 DT model was released in mid-2021. comes with a host of luxury, safety and technology updates that sit it firmly in the luxury SUV class. Powered by a mild hybrid 5.7-litre Hemi V8, it produces 291 kilowatts and torque of 556 newton metres. There's a nice V8 burble, as you would expect, but also some innovative fuel-saving technology as well. The 12-inch vertical configurable touchscreen has intuitive split-screen display capability. It's a standout feature, as are the little luxuries like heat and cooled front seats, heated outer rear seats, premium sound system, 360 degree surround camera system and smartphone integration. Space is the key to the Laramie with huge multifunction centre console bin, plenty of headroom and abundance of rear legroom enough so that my 190cm frame sits comfortably. The Ram 1500 ute starts at a touch under $80,000 and goes through to just under $140,000 actually is well priced compared to luxury SUVs that don't have the space or practicality. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Modern cars are much better handling and have much more power, so if you want to enjoy them for their full potential, you've got to at least go to a track day, or if you really are one with the the racing bug, Mercedes now have an initiative with the Australian company 888 Race Engineering to help you get into a full race car. Jerry Stamelis from Mercedes Australia tells us what the initiative is. We have an AMG customer sports program that runs worldwide where you can contact AMG in a Falterbach in Germany and purchase a GT3 or GT4 race car. That's a turnkey race car ready to go. So it's not road registered and it's ready for the racetrack. So what we're doing with Triple Eight. Think of them as a satellite location for Australia and New Zealand for customers who want to work directly with a race team who can work directly with our factory. So they're not changing any of our road cars. What they'll be doing is facilitating the sale and spare parts distribution for these race cars. This means that they're engaging with people who work for the company works teams yeah so let's say you've bought a gt3 or gt4 race car and you turn up to a race meet at phillip island or bathurst for example and you need access to either technical know-how or spare parts you'll be able to walk up to the experts from triple eight who are working directly with our factory for some on-site assistance i mean that at a race meeting there would be a lot less stress than someone who might just be working out of their garage at home. Yeah, exactly. So if you've, if you've bought one of our GT3 or GT4 race cars, it's racing. So there's going to be some panels being touched on the track or, or maybe there's, uh, you've, hit, you've hit something a little bit too hard and you know, there's a steering arm that needs to be replaced or whatever it may be you'll be able to see if they've actually got the part on site and, and go to the next race rather than putting the order in and waiting for it to come from Germany or wherever it may be. What would it cost me just to buy one of your race cars? A GT3 race car starts at about €300,000, but that's a turnkey race car. That's ready to go. That's nearly 467000 Australian dollars. But when you consider a GTR, a Mercedes AMG GTR is roughly 
Australian dollars on the road. It's very similar money and, and it's it's quite good value that you've got a, a ready to race and with the right driver you'll be you'll be a podium finisher. So from a value point of view, it's actually not too bad. But you know, you don't want to turn up to a racetrack and have all the gear and no idea. You need to you need to definitely be the right driver. Uh, and with the right car, it's a very competitive combination. For the big event, the 12-hour at Bathurst, you arrange packages for owners to be able to go there, if they're not driving, but at least go up there with other like-minded people, a fraternity of Mercedes owners. Yeah, so for those who buy a uh, Mercedes-AMG road car, they have first access to uh, tickets. Normally, we take over the top level of Ridges Hotel uh, and our customers get one of the best seats, if not the best seat in the house, where you can you can see both straights, uh, obviously some great hospitality, but we're also lucky enough to have most of the drivers come up and visit us throughout the actual 12-hour race. So they literally take the helmet off and come straight upstairs and talk to our customers. And we take that one step further. We also take them right to the pit garages. And most of the teams give almost too much access. <laughs> they, they take them right up to the cars. And, and sometimes, if they're lucky enough, they'll get to see a tyre change happen during the race. Uh, we also take them for a tour of the mountain. Most of the driving instructors who we use for our driving events are ex-racers and some of them have raced in the Bathurst 12 hour. Jerry, that's been great. Thanks very much for your time. Anytime. And that was Jerry Stamelis from Mercedes Australia talking about how car companies now are allowing their customers to enjoy some of the potential of their cars, but not just in race days, but if they want to make the next step and go into full competition. You're listening to Overdrive. When it comes to family-sized SUVs, the Kia Sorento is among the best. And now comes in a choice of petrol, diesel and the one I'm driving this week, a plug-in hybrid electric version. Based on the luxurious GT line, the PHEV is the first electrified model in the Sorento lineup, with its power tank combining a turbocharged petrol engine with a battery pack and electric motor. With a fully charged battery pack, you can drive up to 68 kilometres on electric power alone. This means that if I plug the Sorento in each night, I could pretty much drive around every day without using petrol. That's pretty cool. The real benefit of the FEV is that you get the daily savings of all electric power, but can still take longer trips without having to think about it too much, as you can simply fill up at the petrol station, but still get the excellent economy of the hybrid power. The latest Sorento models offer an enhanced all-terrain capability thanks to the new terrain mode where drivers can choose from mud, snow and sand modes. The one downside of the Sorento Feb though is price. It's around 81,990 drive away and that's about 15,000 more expensive than the GT line diesel and you can buy a lot of diesel for that. I'm Brianna Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Recycling is a trendy concept at the moment. What can we recycle and how can we use it not just as a horrible or secondary alternative that is thrust upon us, but as something beautiful and elegant. Brian, can it be done? It can be, David, by God. And in Denmark, they're doing it. So so apparently, um, wind turbine blades wear out. 
and have to be uh, replaced. And and they're quite a, a sort of a long, interestingly shaped kind of thing. And uh, in, in Denmark, they've begun using these old wind turbine blades and sort of laying them horizontally and using them as bicycle parking shelters. And they look very elegant. They've got a, a delightful curve to them. The, the, the blade of the, of the fan blade acts as a cover for the bicycles, and it has a very groovy kind of look. And it's, it's, you, you mentioned recycling and reusing, David, and, and, and what's more sustainable than using uh, you know, a, a green electricity source to, um, uh, to cover the, the most efficient machine we ever made, the bicycle. So uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. A couple of concerns I have, of course, is, um, you know, that it's a good thing it's lying down or it'd be that difficult if you'd only be able to get your bicycle every now and then, you'd have to sort of run along and, and grab it as it came past. Uh, the other thing I'm concerned about, Dave, is a lot of people think that uh, wind turbines create some kind of problems, that they they make a noise that can pay, make people ill or, or um, they have some other bizarre properties. And I just hope when they're lying down like this, that they don't emanate some kind of negative vibe or something like that, David, to concern the neighbours. If the wind blows over them at a certain speed, will they hum? Is, That's I guess, right. Is, guess one of the Cause the chickens and cows to die. <laughs> now, we should describe here, I always think of a wind turbine as having something like an aeroplane wing. The actual design here is a wonderfully long uh, curved front, which goes to about, you know, uh, 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 know, one storey high, you know, head clearance sort of thing. And then there's the flat roof out of it. I'm not sure if they've had to do a little bit of remodelling on that. But the other question, Brian, they wear out. I, I would have thought that would be an incredibly slow process. They have a lifespan of 20 years, David, apparently, but, but a lot have been installed, you know, in a short period of time. So I imagine quite a lot of these blades will come, you know, need to be replaced and, and then either recycled or reused. They're made from um, uh, a bunch of in- different materials, fiberglass, resin, foam, uh, often non-biodegradable, so so difficult to recycle in, in the sort of scrapping way. And so uh, this organisation called the Rewind Network in, in Denmark is looking for ways to, to reuse these blades. And, and so in addition to bike parking, which looks fantastic, I have to say, um, they have other ideas around using them to build pedestrian footbridges or skate parks or noise barriers for alongside highways. So... So because they have such an attractive sort of architectural form about them. So I think it's a great idea and um, and I think people should, you know, be encouraged to look for different ways to to use these things because, like we say, many of them will likely come on the market and uh, be available for, for different sorts of things. I, I looked at it, I think it would make a lovely um, you know, shelter for school kiddies to have their lunch under and those sorts of things. Perfect bus stop in many ways. Yes. Uh, you consider the brutalist bus stops that they made in Canberra, which looked like a German bunker, uh, you know, on a bad day, this brings up absolute architectural splendour to the footpaths. And I think that's one of the only thing is you might not get quite as many because there's always one that's not turning. You know, it's not wearing out. Do you, do you notice that? <laughs> I've, I've never understood that. 
And, of course, you don't want a big wind to come along and for the thing to take off. That might be... Indeed. I wonder why they can't recycle them in, in very, very large aeroplanes, something like that, David. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> propellers. Well, propellers, yes. I think, uh, probably we're going back to a little more with electric aeroplanes. Oh, yeah, maybe there's there's a, well, isn't that symbolic that you've been used for many years to generate electricity and now you're going to use the electricity to do something else? I'm getting perhaps a little bit beyond what the original visions were. A beautiful idea, though, David. Thank you very much, Brian. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Bye. And that's Brian Smith talking there. And it is. We'll put a picture up on our Facebook page, uh, Overdrive City Driven Media. It's a lovely, lovely shot of, uh, of the elegance of this particular structure of an old wind turbine being used for a bus shelter or bike shelter or other such devices. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, Jerry Stamelis, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. There's more information at drivenmedia.com.au. You can podcast past programs on iTunes or Spotify or our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.